This is Lecture 9 of Essential Buddhism taught by Joseph Goldstein at the Naropa Institute in Boulder, Colorado on August 13, 1974. Buddha did not teach Buddhism. What he did was to teach the Dharma, the law, the way things are happening the processes of mind and body. He taught a way for us to experience this truth within ourselves. He did not lay out a series of beliefs or dogmas or ideas which he suggested that people believe or adhere to. He simply expressed the natural law, the workings, the workings of law in the universe and within our own mind-body process. Saying that if people looked within themselves, observed this Dharma within themselves, they would experience all the levels of truth. All the levels of understanding would unfold to the highest attainment of enlightenment, to the ultimate truth. Nothing to be believed in, only a pointing to the truth or the Dharma within. For 45 years after the Buddha's enlightenment, he went around teaching the Dharma. Right? Not teaching Buddhism, he taught, he taught the law, natural law. In this 45 years of teaching, he used a lot of words and a lot of concepts to convey this idea of looking within and, and the path as it unfolds, the path to enlightenment. The words and concepts are only pointing to the truth. They are not the experience of truth itself. What happens is that as people begin to practice less, they begin to mistake the words or the concepts for the experience. And that is very much like a person who goes out on the night of a full moon and he sees another person there standing pointing to the moon. If he is wise, he'll see the finger pointing to the moon and look up at the moon. If he is not so wise, he'll see the finger pointing at the moon and keep looking at the finger. There are lots of different fingers pointing to the moon. There are fat fingers and thin fingers and long ones and short ones. They are all pointing to the same thing. What we have to do is to look at what the finger is pointing, what the finger is pointing at. Right? We have to look at the moon, we have to look at the Dharma within ourselves. All the different words and concepts and ideas are merely fingers pointing to the Dharma, to the law, to the truth. We should not get caught up in attachment to the finger, that misses the point. We have to follow the direction of the pointing 
and experience the Dharma within ourselves, within our own mind and body. A lot of the different vehicles which arose in the development of, of Buddhism, historical Buddhism, all have to do with different means of again getting people to look within themselves. Very often people get attached to that new set of words, to that new finger pointing at the moon. And so get very attached to the vehicle they may be using to the experience of the Dharma. And that's to misunderstand what these different vehicles are. The vehicle of Mahayana, Hinayana, Vajrayana. In China, there was a very famous Zen patriarch, the sixth patriarch, Hui Neng. whose teachings were a very direct pointing at the truth. And in the Sutra of Hui Neng, which, which has been transmitted to us, he makes some very interesting comments on what all these different vehicles mean. Right? <coughs> the lesser vehicle and the greater vehicle. I'd like to read what he says about that. Buddha preached the doctrine of three vehicles and also that of a supreme vehicle. In trying to understand these, you should introspect your own mind and act independently of things and phenomena. The, the distinction of these four vehicles does not exist in the Dharma itself, <coughs> but in the differentiation of people's minds. To see, to hear, and to recite the sutra is the small vehicle. To know the Dharma and to understand its meaning is the middle vehicle. To put the Dharma into actual practice is the great vehicle. To understand thoroughly all Dharmas, to have absorbed them completely, to be free from all attachments, and to be in possession of nothing is the supreme vehicle. To be free of all attachments and to be in possession of nothing is the supreme vehicle. It has nothing to do with whether one is Japanese or Tibetan or Burmese or Indian or Selenese or American or anything at all. It has to do with one's level of understanding of the Dharma. If we are merely reading the texts, reciting the sutras, that is the small vehicle. That's the involvement with the finger. If we are putting the words into practice, experiencing the truth within ourselves, free of all attachments, free of clinging and condemning, then we are practicing the supreme vehicle. Okay, nothing to do with the cultural tradition in which a teaching has arisen. It has to do with our state of practice. In the development 
of different schools of Buddhism, often different words are used to direct us to an experience of the truth within ourselves. And because of the use of certain concepts, it appears as if there are certain contradictions between the schools. That kind of misunderstanding arises because of an attachment to the concept, to the word, not understanding what the word is pointing to. For example, there's a lot of misunderstanding about the word Buddha. On the one hand, the older schools see the Buddha as an historical person, Siddhartha Gautama, who achieved supreme enlightenment at a certain time in history. And that these, this kind of Buddha comes very rarely. Right? Then other schools arise, the Mahayana and Zen and Vajrayana, which say, become Buddha in this lifetime. Realize your Buddha essence, realize your Buddha nature. Okay, it's se a seemingly, a seeming contradiction. It's using the word Buddha in two very different ways. What happened historically was that while the Buddha was alive, the power of his presence very much kept people directed towards the experience of the Dharma within themselves, rather than with clinging to the words or concepts. And not so many people got hung up on the concepts in the Buddha's time. He kept directing them inwards. And in fact, he, he <coughs> recommended one monk who was so enamored of the physical presence of the Buddha that he used to sit right up close all the time and just stare continuously at the form of the Buddha. The Buddha said was that when you see this physical form, you are not seeing the Buddha. When you see the Dharma, you see the Buddha. When you experience the truth, you are experiencing what the Buddha is. Sometime after his death, about 300 years, people began to stop practicing, to stop experiencing the Dharma within themselves. And they began to form all sorts of concepts about the Buddha and Buddhahood. They began to make all kinds of images. For 300 years after his death, there were no Buddha images. No, no images, no <coughs> pujas, no prayers, no incense, right? just the practice. As the practice degenerated, people started making images. Right? So they make all these stone statues of the Buddha and start bringing all sorts of offerings, externalizing the Buddha, putting him outside. There were some very great saints who realized that this was missing the point entirely, that the Buddha was within. And so they formulated a whole range of teachings expressing the idea that we must experience the Buddha, the Dharma, within ourselves. And so a lot of the Mahayana teachings are again a direct pointing back within ourselves. Become Buddha in this lifetime. Right? Realize our Buddha nature, realize our essence of mind. 
turning us inward again to the experience rather than the concept outside, the externalization of it. But how do we reconcile the fact that it's taught that to become Buddha involves eons and eons of development, right, of cultivation of certain qualities? And here people are saying become Buddha in a lifetime. Two different things are being talked about. <laughs> One is the Buddhahood of someone like Siddhartha Gautama, who after a very, very long evolution reached supreme and full enlightenment. And this enlightenment consists of two things. First, it consists of purity of mind, that is, freedom from greed, from hatred and delusion. Secondly, it involved great power of mind, a power which was born out of that very long evolution of practice. A Buddha has powers that no one else has, and he was motivated to all that work, to all that practice, out of compassion, out of compassion for the suffering of all beings. For so many lifetimes, the Bodhisattva, that is, that being who was going to become Buddha, engaged in so much work, so much effort, so much suffering, in order to bring to perfection all those qualities of mind which could be of help and of service to other beings. Tremendous power evolved. Omniscience of mind, which means that wherever the Buddha turned his mind to, that was revealed to him. Nothing was hidden. So there are these two aspects of Buddhahood. Freedom from defilement and power. Right? <coughs> the power born of compassion. The combination of these two are a very rare occurrence. And they refer to the historical Buddhas that arise in a specific time like Siddhartha Gautama and many before him, and it said Maitreya, who is the Buddha to be coming, and many more in the future. At very long intervals, these fully omniscient Buddhas arise. And they're able to help very many beings through this combination of wisdom and purity and power. Becoming Buddha in a lifetime, realizing our Buddha nature, refers to that quality of Buddhahood which is freedom from defilement. We can all free our minds from greed and hatred and delusion. And that purity is exactly the same as that experienced by, by the fully enlightened Buddha. One freedom of mind is not greater than the other. The nirvana of Gautama is the same as the nirvana of anyone else. <coughs> when a big fire goes out, tremendous fire of greed and hatred and delusion, when that fire goes out and a small fire goes out, the outness is the same. One fire is not more out than the other. <coughs> In, the, in that way, we can become Buddha in this lifetime. We can extinguish the fires 
of greed and hatred and delusion within our minds. And that's what's referred to by this achieving Buddhahood now in this lifetime. Achieving that purity of mind, that freedom from defilement. No conflict, no contradiction there. Another concept that has very much caused people to see differences and distinctions between the vehicles has to do with the idea of the Bodhisattva. Right? It's said that the Mahayana are following the Bodhisattvic path and the Hinayana are not following the Bodhisattvic path. Two very different teachings. What does it mean? What are the concepts pointing to? Again, Bodhisattva refers to two different things. First, it refers to that being who has taken the vow to become a supremely enlightened Buddha. That being who is working to combine all those qualities of compassion and wisdom and power in order to, to help all other beings. This is the very highest and most <coughs> noble thing a being can undertake. It involves a tremendous evolution of mind, tremendous effort involved over an incredibly long period of time. Eons and eons, millions and millions of lifetimes are involved in the practice, in the cultivation of the qualities of a Buddha. This is the path of a bodhisattva. Right? One who has taken that vow to ignore his own suffering out of compassion for all others so that he can be of maximum service, maximum help to all other beings. There are many people in all countries who have taken this bodhisattvic vow. There are Tibetans and there are Japanese and there are Burmese and there are Selenese and there are Indians who have chosen this path, right? who have taken this vow to work for full, full Buddhahood, fully enlightened being. It has nothing to do with vehicle. It has nothing to do with country or tradition. It has to do with each person's choice about the path he will follow. It's an incredibly difficult and arduous path involving involving tremendous unthinkable effort right? supreme buddhahood is the pinnacle is the height of what the mind can achieve a very rare attainment but bodhisattva also means something else bodhisattva Bodhisattvas are the personifications of all the wholesome, noble qualities of mind. And in a lot of the Mahayana and Vajrayana traditions, these qualities have been personified in the form of different beings, different Bodhisattvas. So we have the Bodhisattva of Compassion, Chenresi, or the Bodhisattva of Wisdom, Manjushri. Who are they? Are they beings up in the sky? 
They are the personifications of qualities within our own mind. Every moment of wisdom, we are the Bodhisattva Manjushri. In every moment of compassion, we are the Bodhisattva Chanresi. These Bodhisattvas are representations of all the wholesome factors of mind. And they are within, not without. We should not fall into that same misconception as happened with the Buddha and externalizing the Buddha, right? Making images, doing puja to, to something outside. We should not make that same mistake with regard to the bodhisattvas. Because they, again, are merely representations of what's happening within. They're a direct pointing at our own minds, right? Not some beings outside. <coughs> so bodhisattva means these two different things. Understanding that leads to an understanding of what the bodhisattvic vows are all about. On one level, they are the vow of a person who is striving for supreme Buddhahood. To dedicate all one's actions to that supreme enlightenment. On the other hand, the bodhisattvic vow means cultivating all the bodhisattvas within our mind. It's interesting, Hui Nang again has some very interesting things to say about what these vows mean. And this is the teaching of the Mahayana or Zen school. Right? We vow to deliver an infinite number of sentient beings. But what does that mean? It does not mean that I, Hui Nang, am going to deliver them. And who are these sentient beings with, within our mind? They are the delusive mind, the deceitful mind, the evil mind, and such like minds. All of these are sentient beings. Each of them has to deliver himself by means of his own essence of mind. We are all this continuity, this succession of an infinite number of beings within our own mind. The bodhisattvic vow to save all sentient beings can be understood as Hui Nang has expressed as delivering all of those beings within our own, within our own stream of consciousness, within our own minds to deliver the evil mind, the deceitful mind, the mind full of hatred, all of those are beings. We vow to save all sentient beings, all of the beings within our own mind through, through understanding our own essence of mind. Again, a pointing inward, not to get trapped by the externalization <coughs> of these forces, but to understand the Dharma, the truth, within ourselves. Another great area of apparent contradiction 
has to do with the understanding of nirvana. Right? The earlier traditions have samsara as one thing and nirvana as another thing, and you go from samsara to nirvana. And the Mahayana schools arise and say, nirvana and samsara are one. How do those two things <coughs> reconcile? Again, in <coughs> different ways, the words can be understood. What happened was that as people began not to practice, nirvana became a concept. It became something conceptualized and externalized. Oh, nirvana is out there to be experienced in some future lifetime. Mistaking the concept, the word for the experience itself. So great teachers arose, again getting people to experience just in the present moment. Nirvana is not outside and in the future. <coughs> it's right here and now. Samsara and Nirvana are one. Be with what's happening just in the moment. Grounding us again in a present <coughs> awareness. Nirvana is to be experienced right here and now. A very skillful means identifying Samsara and Nirvana. Getting people to look within themselves in the moment. Not projecting a concept outside. There's another way of understanding what nirvana and samsara being one means. Imagine a great whirlwind, a hurricane or typhoon. There's this great turbulence of wind very, very high-velocity wind. And in the center of this whirlwind is a place of calm, of peace. On the one hand, the winds and the, the eye of calm are two very different things. The wind is one thing, and the, the calm in the middle is another thing. That's from one perspective. From another perspective, one can take this whole unit this whole hurricane, the winds, and the eye as a unity, right? And so we can say samsara and nirvana are one, seeing the totality of it. Depending on which perspective we're looking from depends the words that we're going to use to describe it. But the words are not the thing itself. The words are pointing to an experience. We can say samsara and nirvana are different, we can say samsara and nirvana are one, and from different perspectives, different angles, they're both true. But they are both pointing to an experience within ourselves. Another way of understanding what that means, that, that unity of samsara and nirvana, is that the result of the experience of that eye of peace, that center of peace, the result of that experience is a freedom within the turbulent winds. People who experience nirvana, who experience enlightenment, do not stay in that state of calm, in that state of peace. 
in that state of cessation of turbulence. Again, the mind-body process continues, but with freedom. The process is the same of one enlightened and one unenlightened. Mind and body are arising and passing away. But there is a certain freedom in that process which results from having had the experience of nirvana, of enlightenment. But the process is the same. And in that sense, samsara and nirvana are one. It is all to be experienced, all words pointing within. I'd like to read from one very high tantric text, the Tibetan book of the Great Liberation, which talks very much about (coughs) what the experience is of, of nirvana. Many different words have been used to describe it. It can be called nirvana, it can be called one mind, it can be called essence of mind, it can be called mahamudra, it can be called Buddha nature, Buddha essence. The word does not matter. There are many different fingers pointing to exactly the same experience. The texts that I'm going to read now are very powerful. They're very direct pointings at the truth. (coughs) So you should listen with a very clear and open and silent and receptive mind. Don't think about the words, but do them. There being really no duality, pluralism is untrue. Until duality is transcended and at one moment realized, enlightenment cannot be attained. The whole samsara and nirvana, as an inseparable unity, are one's mind. Owing to worldly beliefs which he is free to accept or reject, man wanders in samsara. Therefore, practicing the Dharma, freed from every attachment, grasp the whole essence of these teachings. Although the one mind is, it has no existence. When one seeks one's mind in its true state, it is found to be quite intelligible, although invisible. In its true state, mind is naked, immaculate, not made of anything, being of the voidness, clear, vacuous, without duality, transparent, timeless, uncompounded, unimpeded, colorless, not realizable as a separate thing, but as the unity of all things, yet not composed of them, of one taste and transcendent over differentiation. This one mind being verily of the voidness and without any foundation, one's mind is likewise as vacuous as the sky. To know whether this is so or not, look within thine own mind. Being merely a flux of instability like the air of the firmament, Objective appearances are without power to fascinate and fetter. (coughs) To know whether this be so or not, look within thine own mind. (coughs) All appearances are verily one's own concepts, self-conceived in the mind like reflections seen in a mirror. To know whether this be so or not, look within thine own mind. Arising of themselves and being naturally free like the clouds in the sky, 
all external appearances verily fade away into their own respective places. To know whether this be so or not, look within thine own mind. The Dharma being nowhere save in the mind, there is no other place of meditation in the mind. The Dharma being nowhere save in the mind, there is no other doctrine to be taught or practiced elsewhere. The Dharma being nowhere save in the mind, there is no other place of truth for the <coughs> observance of a vow. The Dharma being nowhere save in the mind, there is no other Dharma elsewhere whereby liberation may be attained. Again and again look within thine own mind. Again and again and again look within thine own mind. That is where the truth is to be experienced. Not only are all these different expressions of the truth pointing to the same experience. In fact, all the different paths are the same. Sometimes it's thought that the tantric way is one path and the Zen way is another path and the Theravada is another path. All very different. And in a moment of generosity one may agree that perhaps they do arrive at the same place but very different paths. In fact, the path itself is identical. I'd like to read a little bit from the Sutra of the Third Patriarch, right, the Third Zen Patriarch, which was the booklet which we passed out in class, describing the path to the experience of truth within one's own mind. The great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. When love and hate are both absent, everything becomes clear and undisguised. Make the smallest distinction, however, and heaven and earth are set infinitely apart. If you wish to see the truth, then hold no opinions for or against. The struggle between what one likes and what one dislikes is the disease of the mind. When the deep meaning of things is not understood, the mind's essential peace is disturbed to no avail. The way is perfect like vast space, where nothing is lacking and nothing is in excess. Indeed, it is due to our choosing to accept or reject that we do not see the true nature of things. Live neither in the entanglements of outer things nor in inner feelings of emptiness. Be serene in the oneness of things, and such erroneous views will disappear by themselves. The changes that appear to occur in the empty world we call real only because of our ignorance. Do not search for the truth. Only cease to cherish opinions. Obey the nature of things, your own nature, and you will walk freely and undisturbed. When thought is in bondage, the truth is hidden, for everything is murky and unclear. And the burdensome practice of judging brings annoyance and weariness. What benefit can be derived 
from distinctions and separations. If you wish to move in the one way, do not dislike even the world of senses and ideas. Indeed, to accept them fully is identical with true enlightenment. The wise man strives to no goals, but the foolish man fetters himself. There is one Dharma, not many. Distinctions arise from the clinging needs of the ignorant. One thing, all things, move among and intermingle without distinction. To live in this realization is to be without anxiety about non-perfection. To live in this faith is the road to non-duality, because the non-dual is one with the trusting mind. Words. The way is beyond language, for in it there is no yesterday, no tomorrow, no today. <coughs> the mind in balance, the mind which is not accepting and rejecting, which is not making distinctions, which is not making divisions and separations, which does not cherish opinions, which is not attached. That is the path. The path expressed by a Chinese Zen master. The same path <coughs> expressed in one of the highest teachings of Rinpoche's lineage. Right? Tantric teachings, the Song of Mahamudra. Mahamudra is beyond all words and symbols, but for you, Naropa, earnest and loyal, must this be said. The void needs no reliance. Mahamudra rests on naught. Without <coughs> making an effort, but remaining loose and natural, one can break the yoke, thus gaining liberation. If one sees naught when staring into space, the ideas of center and boundary dissolve. If with the mind, then one observes the mind, one destroys distinctions and reaches Buddhahood. The clouds that wander through the mind, the clouds that wander through the sky have no roots, no home. Nor do the distinctive thoughts floating through the mind. Once the self-mind is seen, discrimination stops. In space, shapes and colors form, but neither by black nor by white is space tinged. From the self-mind all things emerge. The mind by virtue and by vices is not stained. Do not with the body but relax. Shut firm the mouth and silent remain. Empty your mind and think of naught. Like a hollow bamboo rest at ease your body. Giving not nor taking put your mind at rest. Mahamudra is like a mind that clings to naught. Thus practicing in time you will reach Buddhahood. He who abandons craving and clings not to this or that perceives the real meaning given in the scriptures. At first a yogi feels his mind is tumbling like a waterfall. In mid-course, like the Ganges, it flows on slow and gentle. In the end, it is a great vast ocean where the lights of son and mother merge in one.
one path. He who abandons craving and clings not to this or that perceives the real meaning given in the scriptures. Whether one is following the path of Tantra or of Zen or of Indian or Burmese or Chinese or what American Buddhism or Dharma or Hinduism or whatever, the path to freedom is identical. <coughs> Developing a mind which clings to naught, which is not attached to anything whatsoever, free on all sides. In the Zen tradition, they have some very beautiful expressions of this very same Dharma, right, the very same truth. Often told very beautifully, poetically, humorously. I'd like to read a couple of, a couple of short stories illustrating this same unity of Dharma. The same unity of truth. Nanin, a Jap Japanese master during the Meiji era, received a university professor who came to inquire about Zen. Nanin served tea. He poured his visitor's cup full and then kept on pouring. The professor watched the overflow until he no longer could restrain himself. It is overfull. No more will go in. Like this cup, Nanin said, you are full of your own opinions and speculations. How can I show you Zen unless you first empty your cup? We have to empty our cups. We have to let go of our attachment to our own ideas, our own opinions about things, so we can experience the truth. Not think about, think about our ideas but have the actual taste of the Dharma. Experience the Dharma within ourselves. Do not seek the truth, only cease to cherish opinions. In that silence of mind, the whole Dharma is revealed. It all unfolds by itself when the mind is quiet. <laughs> Tanzin and Hokkaido were once traveling together down a muddy road. A heavy rain was still falling. Coming around the bend, they met a lovely girl in a silk kimono and sash, unable to cross the intersection. Come on, girl, said Tanzin at once. Lifting her in his arms, he carried her over the mud. Hokkaido did not speak again until that night when they reached a lodging temple. Then he no longer could restrain himself. We monks don't go near females, he told Tanzin, especially not young and lovely ones. It's dangerous. <laughs> Why did you do that? I left the girl there, said Tanzin. Are you still carrying her? Living in the moment, letting go in the moment. 
not carrying with us this, this burden of excess luggage, experiencing fully every moment and letting go. Very freeing. Vasui wrote the following letter to one of his disciples who was about to die. The essence of your mind is not born, so it will never die. It is not an existence which is perishable. It is not an emptiness which is a mere void. It has neither color nor form. It enjoys no pleasures and suffers no pain. I know you are very ill. You may not know exactly who is suffering, but question yourself. What is the essence of this mind? Think only of this. You will need no more. Covet nothing. Your end, which is endless, is as a snowflake dissolving in the pure air. A snowflake dissolving in the pure air. So many different expressions of the Dharma. So many different fingers pointing at the moon. <coughs> there is no need to cling or to be attached to any one of them. Because they are all pointing to the same experience of the truth of the Dharma within ourselves. We are very fortunate to come to the Dharma in the West so as not to be bound by any one particular cultural expression of the Dharma. We can take the whole range of these teachings from all the schools, the poetry and the analysis, the Tantra and the Zen and the Theravada and the American Dharma. We can take them all, we can integrate them all. We can use them all as, as a pointing to the experience, the experience in our own mind. Again and again, look within thine own mind. That's where the Dharma is to be found. That's where enlightenment is to be realized. That's where the truth is to be experienced within ourselves. And all the words, all the concepts, all the vehicles, all the schools, all the traditions are merely directing us to look inward. To experience the whole range of the Dharma right here and now within. Questions. Is this precept uh, really hard for the teachers to realize? Teachers who are teaching Dharma. I did not hear. I said, is this idea uh, that all are this one path? Is that hard for many teachers to realize? <coughs> you know, everybody has expresses the Dharma according to the way they learned it. <coughs> right? And especially in 
Buddhist countries, the Dharma itself, there's a very great overlay of cultural and social uh, structure. I really feel that the great beauty of the Dharma in the West is that it is free of that. Right? So all of us come to the Dharma with a very broad range of experience and conditioning. Right? So generally we're not bound, or we need not be bound by any one expression. Right? We, can, we can use them all, the whole panorama of teachings. But we can only understand the unity of the words through our experience, right? Only by looking within our own minds, experiencing the Dharma very deeply in ourselves, and then it's so easy to see the unity of all the expressions. It's fine because it is the path, and this is the path, and this is the path, and this is the path, right? So, whomever we're learning from, whoever our teacher is, we learn the path that they are teaching, right? And it's fine, it's not to, it's not to throw out all paths, it's to understand that they are all expressions of the same truth, right? But it's to use all the different paths, to use the different vehicles, to use the different expressions, but understanding what they're pointing to rather than clinging to them. Not necessarily. The idea is to to experience the Dharma in our own minds. You can follow a narrow path, you can follow a broad path, it does not matter. What matters is the experience. Any teaching which leads one to the to the experience of truth in oneself. Whether it is narrowly defined or broadly defined, it does not matter. Right? As long as as long as it's a pointing to the true Dharma inside. Say something. Uh, I just feel it having an experience of clinging to the teacher rather than practicing right. the teacher. Exactly. <coughs> I understand what you said very much about I like it very much, but I just finished reading cutting through. And I'm a little confused now because the impression that I got in reading the book was that as one goes on the path, there's a progression of stages that are gone through towards enlightenment. And that progression, as I understood it, seems to be that you go through Hinayana, well, to Mahayana and into Tantra. Um, and it seems to be a progression from one vehicle to another vehicle as you go so with, with different kind of psychological um, things happening at each point. Okay, again there's a confusion because those words are used in two different ways. Right? In the sense that Rinpoche often uses it, Hinayana, Mahayana, Vajrayana, he's talking about stages on a path to realization. Right? And whichever, whichever path one is following, 
those same stages are going to be there. Right? You can be following a Burmese tradition or a Japanese or a Tibetan. And in that use of the words, you're going to go through these three different stages. Right? But there's the problem, the confusion arises, because those words also refer to three different historical traditions. Right? So people confuse the stages on the path with the, with the historical tradition of it. <coughs> For myself, I don't find those concepts so useful. Right? There are many stages along the path. They are to be experienced. The, label, the labeling of them, the conceptualizing of this is Hinayana, this is Mahayana, this is Vajrayana, they seem to me very extraneous <coughs> concepts and very liable to be misunderstood, right? Because people do confuse them with the, with the different historical traditions. There is just what there is. There's the unfolding of the Dharma within oneself. We go through very many experiences. To experience them is what's important. And, and the naming of them is very, can be very confusing. I did not follow that list. Uh, well, I, I guess from the point of view he's looking at it, then you would say that there's different stages on the path. Right. Not that to be confused with the different disciplines, with the different uh, cultural traditions. Right. He has said that within Theravada, you have Hinayana, Mahayana, Vajrayana. Okay. Within Zen, you have Hinayana, Mahayana, Vajrayana. Right? Okay. Um, one, one more quick one. Um, the different, there are different, different meditation techniques within each culture they would still be just different ways of <coughs> You know, mindfulness can be developed on any object whatsoever. You can develop mindfulness on thoughts, you can develop them on emotions, you can develop them on the body, you can develop them on external objects, on internal objects, or on all of them, or on some combination. And all the different techniques are merely different ways of developing mindfulness. Right? It's the mindfulness which is important. It's that balance of mind out of which enlightenment can happen. And all the different techniques are merely ways of achieving that kind of balance. <coughs> but people, people begin to cling to the object, to the technique. Oh, we must be watching our emotions. Right? If we're not watching the emotions, it's not, it's not good. Or we must be watching the body, or thoughts, or posture, or the breath. It's just to be aware because all things are impermanent. And so insight can be developed on any object whatsoever. You can experience enlightenment in the middle of a thought, in the middle of a pain, while eating, while walking, any time at all. Because it comes out of a balance of mind, not by having some particular object. Right? In, in Zen meditation, um, are, you, are you mindful of nothing or everything? I, I'm a little confused as to, as to that, that. There are different schools of Zen also. As I described the kind of meditation we're doing to Chino Sensei, he said, oh, just like Zen. <laughs> right? Moment-to-moment -moment awareness of what it is that's happening. And, that, and that's still clearing of the mind. Right, because it's without clinging, without condemning, without identifying. How dangerous Tantra 
practice can be. It's like walking a razor's edge. Could you comment on that? Okay, a lot of practices, not only in Tantra, but quite a bit of Tantra, has to do with the skillful use of power. There are many powers of mind, right, which can be developed, and they can be used skillfully. That is very dangerous. If one develops power before developing a certain degree of purity and understanding, it's very easy to misuse the power. Very tempting, you know? When you have great power of mind and can, can direct or manipulate how things are happening, very dangerous, very tempting. Unless there is a very firm foundation in wisdom and compassion and understanding. Right? But this, this development of power has nothing to do with Tantra or any other school. It is a power of mind and there are techniques to develop them. I had one teacher in India who had, who had done this training in Burma. Extraordinary level of insight and also of Samadhi. And she was trained in all of these psychic powers. And all the things that, that Rinpoche talks about and all that are in the books. You know, making many bodies out of one and traveling through the air and incredible stories, you know. That's available to anyone. You don't have to be Tibetan. It's a power of mind, right? And it can be developed. It is not wisdom. Power and wisdom are two very different things. And it is extremely dangerous to develop that power before reaching a high level of enlightenment. And I think that's what he's talking about. It is dangerous. It can be used skillfully if one has a firm foundation. It is not necessary. There are many enlightened beings without power, without these psychic powers. And there are many beings with, it, with power who are not enlightened. So there are they're two very different things. In some people, they could be combined. That's the razor's edge. What about these powerful visualizations that come out? That's a concentration technique, mm-hmm. right? To, to give the mind a visualization, to make the mind one-pointed on it. And you have visualizations in all the traditions. Right? There, are, there are these techniques of samadhi for the development of psychic power. Right? In the Tibetan tradition, they, they visualize certain deities. In other traditions, they visualize other things. It doesn't matter. Right? It's the factor of samadhi, of one-pointedness, which is being very highly cultivated to the point of forming a basis for the development of power. You can also get insight on that if, if that samadhi is then used to observe the process, to observe the flow. And part of the visualization process is to create it and then to see it vanish into nothingness. So it's used, it can be used both for the development of power and insight also. In the it refers to the complete elimination of greed, hatred, and delusion from the mind, which comes as the result of experiencing nirvana. Mm-hmm. Not the f- we discussed this before. The first experience of nirvana, the first glimpse of the ultimate truth, 
removes some of the defilements of mind, others remain. And as one continues to, to walk upon the path, again one has the experience, right? And further defilements are uprooted. And Arhant is one in whom they're all uprooted. See, again, that, that's one of the problems of, of concepts. The, the Mahayana or Vajrayana tradition are Arhants. They're just, they're just for themselves. You know, that's some lowly attainment. The idea is Buddhahood in this lifetime. It's exactly the same thing. Buddhahood in this lifetime means the freedom from greed, hatred, and delusion. Right? It's, it's the use of concepts which has caused which has caused the misunderstanding because people have not experienced what the concepts are talking about. In the experience of the truth, the unity of the Dharma is understood. It says in, in the Tantric teachings, <laughs> develop a mind which does not cling to anything. Right? Not craving, not clinging. This is, this is the essence of all teachings. It becomes so simple when one practices. <laughs> <You know. laughs> yeah, I've been thinking of some about uh, analogies that would sort of capture the experience of samadhi so that during my practice I can recognize it when it's there. You'll know. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, examples of real heightened sort of attention. I come up with things like, uh, I just wonder if you sort of comment to say whether they sound like what somebody is like. <laughs> yeah, like, uh, <laughs> like you're going through the day and doing something you know, strength of the mind or anything. Suddenly hear like a loud gunshot, and just in the instant, your mind is like, really snaps to the object, right? really snaps to the noise, or, I don't know, like an important person, you know, like a, sort of a person of real importance <clears throat> suddenly walking through your neighborhood, you know, when you're like on the sidewalk watching a person go by, and like, uh, you know, for 20 seconds you're just like uh, really focused on the person, everything else is evacuated. It is that very sharp focus of mind, right? the unwavering mind. But one of the concomitants of concentration is tranquility. <coughs> so you have that focus, but without the jarring of attention to the gunshot, for example. That kind of attention, but with a very great calmness of mind. Right? Very, very focused, very clear, very tranquil. moment to moment, not just in a moment or for a few seconds. Also, do not think of samadhi in terms of a particular state. Samadhi means concentration, and there's a whole range. Right? It, it's a continuum, starting from very weak concentration to absorption, to the jhanas, to trance states. But it, it's this continuum of strength of one-pointedness. We all have some degree of samadhi. Concentration is a common mental factor, which means it's present in every moment of consciousness. Mostly it's weak. 
as we as we cultivate the practice, it gets stronger and stronger. Oh yeah, oh, yeah there's another part of this question. In the two examples I mentioned, like what brings the attention about is a real jarring, you know, like some somebody who's very important, who's like real extraordinary, or like a like the Buddha. Uh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but is something like that required in order to? bring about like samadhi meditation thing? Is there like a parallel? There's only one thing that's required and that is to be aware of what's happening in the moment. Right? If we have any idea at all of what should be happening, we're not experiencing the moment. We're not on the path at that time. To be mindful if there's concentration, if there's not concentration to be mindful if there's restlessness or not restlessness. Whatever it is that's happening, simply to sit back and be aware of it. Choiceless awareness, that's the whole path from beginning to end. And then it all unfolds by itself. There's nothing we have to do to make things happen. Don't believe how simple it is. You know, there's this desire to complicate it and to to think that we have to get into some fantastic mental contortions. It's just sitting back very attentively and observing the flow. Can it be worth much, uh, Simple, not easy. <laughs> <laughs> That's easy. <laughs> What is meant by all other beings? Well, I, mean, I was wondering if you were talking about that. Except in a way, that seems like. I mean, there could be, uh, you know, two, two ways of, of looking at that then. Because if you just take it as being the beings within yourself, it seems that, that in a way that's still on a very, uh, well, I'll use the word, Hinayana level. I mean, it seems like... That was, that was Hui Nang talking, not me. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, he was a Mahayanist. Right. But it, it seems like... It seems like uh, well, I can I can see it on that level, being being the beings, you know, within yourself. But also, if if you just take it on that level, it seems like that is just for uh, self attainment and the hell with everything else. You know? Except it does not happen that way, because in fact the whole path revolves about the seeing of the illusory nature of self. Right? The path cannot be selfish because there is no self there in the first place, mm-hmm. and and a natural and automatic expression of understanding the Dharma right, on whatever level is love and compassion and sharing and helping and service. Right? That has nothing to do with, with vehicle or path or vow. That's the expression of the Dharma. As we lose our attachment to the concept that this is I and that's other, automatically we're experiencing the unity of all, of all beings. Right? And automatically there's, there's love and service. Yeah, I used to think that um, like the words of the third patriarch, do not seek the truth, only cease to cherish opinions. Then the Dharma all 
It just expands and is revealed all on its own. You know, if we have any preconception at all, it's a, it's a limit and an obstacle to our understanding. To let it all happen. understanding of the Dharma comes from a silent mind, right? The mind that is not clinging to thoughts and concepts. And in that place of silence, all of these questions just dissolve. All that there is, is the law or the truth. All the problems exist on the conceptual level. And as long as we're not practicing, as long as we're not experiencing, the mind gets entangled in this web of questions which all dissolve as soon as we let go of them. Silence and peace of mind, and then everything is understood. Okay, let's get some silence and peace of mind. But before, just a couple of announcements. In-out breath, or the rising and falling of the abdomen. sensations when they arise, pain or heat or cold or itching or tingling or vibrating, to be aware of thoughts, to be aware of the fact that the mind is thinking, not getting involved in the content, but observing the arising and passing away of thoughts, intentions. If there are visions, to be aware of seeing not getting involved in the content of the vision, but to be aware of the process of seeing. If there's a very loud, loud startling sound, to be aware of hearing, not getting, not getting involved in the cause or the content of the sound. To be with the flow of phenomena, with whatever is predominant, without clinging, without condemning, without identifying with it, sitting back very relaxed, very easy, very attentive. We'll sit for about half an hour. Eyes, opening the eyes. Notice the intention to shift position, and the shifting of position. Called it the divided nonsense. You can do anything. But then and it's also going from the level of concept and thought to the level of silence. In other words, when you see it, there's a quick perception that you have to get out of the way. That's a whole thought. That's a whole thought process. Oh yeah. But then yeah. other times you describe what is to be mindful. Okay. Description goes something like this. 